I'd like for you to turn to the 31st Psalm. What happens when your past comes calling? That there is a connection between our choices and consequences, and those are irrevocable. It is important to remember that what we choose today will be largely what we experience tomorrow, and our choices are irrevocable. So we need to be very careful about choices. There are two sides to everything, so there, there is another side to the mistakes we made, even though the natural consequences of our choices are irrevocable. There is another side to that, and that's what we want to deal with tonight. Everybody makes mistakes. When I'm in the car, um, if I'm you know, in the car in the morning, maybe to make a hospital visit or whatever, I listen to talk radio, okay? And I listen to KLIF talk radio. And occasionally they have somebody on there that's promoting a book they have written. Friday, they had a guy on there that has written a book, I've got to get it, entitled, It Seemed Like a Good Idea at the Time. It's a hilarious, it must be hilarious, because they talked about some of the things that were in the book. It seemed like a good idea at the time. And then they invited people to call in to put what they would put in a book like that if they were writing it. I tell you what, it was, it was a scream. And as these guys would call in or ladies would call in about things they thought sounded like a good idea at the time, and, and I, I can relate to a whole lot of it. It had to do with dating and all that kind of stuff, and it was hilarious. It's not as funny when you're living it out, but there are a lot of things that seem like a good idea at the time that turn out to be really, really bad. Everybody makes mistakes. Nikita Khrushchev and John Kennedy were in a heated debate. Khrushchev, as these young people don't remember him, but the premier of the Soviet Union, and Kennedy asked him, Sir, have you ever made a mistake? And he said, Yes. When I was addressing the 20th Congress of the Party Congress, I told of all the mistakes that Stalin had made. Big mistake when you, when you do something like that. Jess Moody says that architects cover their mistakes with paint. Doctors cover their mistakes with sod. Get that, will you? <laughs> a wife covers her mistakes with mayonnaise. Burnt that meat just a little bit, just spread a little more mayonnaise on it. And hypocrites cover their mistakes with ritual. Everybody makes mistakes, and some of us try to cover them largely to no avail. Now, when I talk about the mistakes we make, I'm not talking about rebellion against God, that kind of thing. I'm talking about just those silly mistakes we make. Truman said, when I make a mistake, I save them up and make a butte. And that's just about the way I am. Webster defines mistakes like this. To choose wrongfully, wrong judgment, wrong attitude, action, or statement proceeding from faulty judgment, inadequate knowledge, or inattention. That's the kind of mistakes I want to talk about tonight. 
And I want to put them into categories, and I want to show you examples of them from Scripture, what they did and what is to, do, to be done about them. So you follow along with me with your Bible, please, and then we'll get to the text in just a moment. The first category are mistakes that are panic-prompted. Panic-prompted. The mistakes we make when we get in a hurry, when we get in a panic, the mistakes that are caused by fear, sometimes in a spirit of panic, we do things that we would not ordinarily do. And we look back on it and we say, now how in the world could I have gotten into that mess? There is an example. It's in the 10th, in the 12th chapter, book of Genesis. Now I want you to turn with me. We'll have a little fun looking at some of these. It's fun to see everybody else's mistakes. And when you get over in the Old Testament, there in Genesis 12, you just hold the place because we're going to come back while we're in the neighborhood. And I want you to begin reading with me at verse 10 of chapter 12. And there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. Now I want you to get the picture of a mistake made in panic. For here was a man who had all these promises of God I'm going to make you a nation that is greater than the sand on the sea and more glorious than the stars. And a little famine comes up and he panics. And what he does, instead of trusting in God to carry through on his promise, he runs off down to Egypt where there is a greater provision available. Now when he gets there, look at the next verse. And it came about when he came near to Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, See now, I know that you're a beautiful woman. It'll come about when the Egyptians see you. You know the rest of the story. I want you to tell them. I don't want you to tell them you're my wife. I want you to tell them something else. But you see, when you make a mistake that's panic-prompted, it usually has a domino effect, and it just leads to another mistake and another mistake. And when we move into panic palace, usually we give greater credence to what other people say than we should. For example, when they went into the land of, 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 of Canaan, the promised land, and they saw what they saw there, they came back to give the report. And the people listened to the others who were talking out of fear and panic. For when you move into Panic Palace, you usually listen to what other people say more than, you, than your own rationale or listen to what God has to say. All right? Second, there are mistakes that come as a result of good intentions. That's what I'm talking about by the man who wrote the book. It seemed like a good idea, good idea at the time. One guy called in and said, I got married, seemed like a good idea at the time. The implication was that things weren't turning out so well. But these are mistakes that, that we make with absolute pure motive. Something um, seems right and we do it and we're sincere in it, but it's just the wrong thing to do. There is an example of that. It's found in the book of Exodus chapter 2. So what you, while you're in the neighborhood of Genesis... I want you to look with me in Exodus chapter 2. You're probably already anticipating this mistake mistake with good intentions. Anybody know what that would be? Just want to answer back to me? Okay. Starts with an M. Moses. Chapter 2, verse 11. Look at this. Chapter 2, verse 11. Now it came about those days when Moses had grown up that he went out to his brethren 
looked on their hard labors, saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that. When he saw there was no one around, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Now what he did was on the basis of a good intention. He thought that was the way to do it. Now, my my brethren is getting beat up by these Egyptians. I'm going to take their cause. I'm going to take a stand for them. And he really had a pure and sincere motive. Let me show you, if you'll just flip back to the the, uh, seventh chapter of the book of Acts, same story from a different perspective. And I want to begin reading at verse 23. I'm hurrying because they got the pie ready. And I've noticed that the people who who cut the pies always leave early. I've noticed that. Go down ahead of time. So we want to beat them down there. So chapter 7 of the book of Acts, verse 23. Look at this. But this is another perspective on the same story. But when he was approaching the age of 40, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel, And when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him, took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian, and he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. So he made a mistake on the basis of what he thought was right. They'll understand, pure motive, but it really didn't really work out that way. All right, number three. This is getting longer than I thought it was, so I'll do a little slice. And my sermons, you visitors, are like bologna. I can cut it off at either end. All right, so all right, there, there, is a, there is the mistake made in passive negligence. Passive negligent mistakes. And usually, passive negligent mistakes relate to the family, most of the time, to the father. Now, I want, look, I, want you, I want to ask you to look this up, but I would ask you to write in the notation 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 5. And let me tell you what this is about. This is about David as an old man, and he sees his son doing something that he knows is not right, but he's too passive, too tired, too indifferent to do anything about it, and he doesn't raise a hand to stop him. And the same thing is said of of Amnon, and the same thing is said of Absalom. Uh, Here is a father who made the terrible mistake that many fathers make, many of us make, and that is the mistake of being so indifferent and so unconcerned and so tired that we see something wrong, but we don't do anything about it. Now, One of the biggest reasons why we're in the mess we're in is not because bad people do bad things, but because good people do nothing. And we sit by and have watched passively while the whole thing goes down the tube. I mean, the whole country, that's called the mistake of passive indifference, it's the sin of doing nothing. Let me tell you how to ruin a marriage Do nothing. Say nothing. You don't know how to ruin a garden. You don't have to plant weeds. Just don't do anything about it. And it'll it'll just fall down on its own. All right, number four. There is unrestrained curiosity. The mistake of unrestrained curiosity. Usually, this relates to demonic or sensational matters. 
Now, if you have, if you want to put in there a little notation, 1 Samuel 28, 8. Now, this is a story of Saul who goes to this witch, this spirit, this diviner, this fortune teller. And he disguises himself so she won't recognize him, but he goes to this, this spirit, this fortune teller, because he's caught up in this matter of sensationalism, of the demonic, the occult world, and he makes the mistake of an unrestrained curiosity. Folks, don't get sucked into stuff because you have a curiosity about it. You read the book of Ecclesiastes, and it says, the, the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes said, I wanted to try everything, so I tried everything. And I found out in the bottom line, ultimate end, that I made a mistake of being, of being so gullible that I tried everything. Sure, a bottle of beer looks great on television. I'll give it a try. Sure, a snort of cocaine will feel good. I've heard it would. I'll give it a try. There's so much curiosity involved. And unrestrained curiosity leads to mistakes that are horrific. All right, number five. The mistakes we make because of blind spots. Blind spots. Now, right in the notation, Acts 15 is the story of Paul and Mark. Now, Paul had this boy go along with him on his missionary journey, and the boy got homesick, so he went home. Well, it came time for a second missionary journey, and Barnabas wanted to bring along his nephew Mark, but John, but, but Paul said, no way, I'm not going to, this guy's already signed off with me. I mean, I'm through with him for good. But come to find out later that he missed an opportunity, this boy was of great advantage and value to him. But he had a blind spot about that. Some of us have a prejudice, a, a predisposed prejudice that we, that we just come into life with and we miss a lot of things because we have blind spots in some areas. Those are the categories of mistakes. That's the runway. Here's the plane takeoff. We'll take a quick trip and then we'll be back. Let's get the perspective on Psalm 31. It is written in a blue day in David's life. Look how he begins with the, with the book, with the insert. Look how he begins. In thee, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be ashamed. Now here's David on a blue day, ashamed for the mess he's made of life. Some of the mistakes he's made, he made out of sincerity. Some of the mistakes he made because of passive indifference, but always when you make a mistake, don't you feel ashamed? There are some of us tonight, there are some of you, who just are living in the horrible memories of some mistake in the past, and it always brings a sense of shame. I want you to look at verse 2. Incline thine ear, rescue me, be thou to me a rock of strength, a stronghold to save me. Verse 5, unto thy hand I commit, into thy hand I commit my spirit. Who does that sound like? Do you remember that? Who said that? Jesus. Now, we know that Jesus never made a mistake, but when Jesus said, made this statement, he helped us all to see that the only person who can make you feel unashamed, forgiven, is our Lord Himself. And we have to commit our past 
and all the mistakes we have made it in it to Him, for He is the only one who can comfort us. You don't have to go through life feeling ashamed. Now, if you're following the, the outline, how does God view us? Now, we view ourselves sometimes in shame. I mean, we view ourselves as, as a mess-up. I could use other words, but they use those down the pool hall. <laughs> as a mess-up. I'm not as bad as Gerald Ford, but I am kind of clumsy, you know. And uh, the, so, so we view ourselves sometimes as a guy that just can't get anything right. How does God view us? I want you to look at verses 6 and 7. I hate those who regard vain idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in thy loving kindness, underline, because thou hast seen my affliction, thou hast known the troubles of my soul. Two things. How does he view us? Number one, he views us realistically. He views us realistically. He sees us as we really are. Now, we make a big effort at covering up. We spread a little mayonnaise on there. We put a little sod on there. We paint a little paint for mistakes. Thank God for whiteout material. You know, we can put that on our, on our, uh, our, our typing. And when we cover up all of this, He sees us as we really are. He not only sees us realistically, He views us thoroughly. Verse 7. He knows our affliction and the troubles we are in, and I reminded of, of Psalm 139, He sifts us like the archaeologist sifts his fine. Took my little, uh, thought I'd take a little break Fourth uh, of July afternoon. Hard worker me, bless my heart. But I, I thought I'd take a little break. I thought, take my treasure hunter. I got me one of these, uh, what do you call them? Metal detectors. Appreciate it. And so I got, I got a loud buzz. Man, I'm on a trail. And I'm digging down, big blister in the palm of my hand to prove it, digging down, and I'm, I'm getting down there, and I'm way down, and it's still buzzing louder and louder. I'm like, man, there's got to be a box with silver dollars in it or gold. So I thought, well, I better, better be. So I'm taking out this dust, and I'm sifting it through my fingers on the ground, be sure nothing is there. You know what I'm saying? Very, very careful. That's what it means when the psalmist said, you sift me. He takes us and he sifts us and he's certain about everything that's involved in our life. He knows our thoughts before we think them. He knows our actions before we do them. He knows the events that bombard our lives before it happens. So that when you go to God, you have nothing to hide. He knows all about you anyway. Okay? Now, if that's how He views us, how does He treat us on the basis of how He views us? I want you to look at verse 8. And thou hast not given me over to the hand of the enemy. Thou hast set my feet in a large place. Magnificent statement. Two things He said. He has not given us over. He has not rejected us. You know why you cover up? Because you fear 
that if you are found out, you'll be rejected. He will not give you over, he's saying. He has not given me over. That is, he gives me freedom to fail without being done with me. Doesn't cast me away, doesn't reject me. Hallelujah. It means that I can fail and goof up. And it's not the end with me as far as God is concerned. He doesn't reject us. Secondly, he gives us space. Now, that's what he means when he says, he puts my feet in a large place. That is, he gives me freedom to fail. It's like the prodigal son. The father says, okay, you want it? Go for it. And he gives him that freedom to make a mistake. He puts his feet in a large place and says, okay, one of the greatest things I can ever do for you as a child of mine is to give you the freedom to make choices for yourself. Now, we don't like to do that as parents. We like to make choices for them. Now, I've, had, I've been asked a lot of times, these guys have come up with these questions, you know, like where did Cain get his wife and all that, and it was good. those are good questions. If I were able, I'd tell you. <laughs> oh, <laughs> a little pun there. Uh, we come up with these questions and like, you know, why did God put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and let them choose to, to, to get the apple or whatever it was if he knew, you know, they were going to do that and it would be consequential that way? Why would God do that? And just, you know, giving God a hard time. Let me tell you why he did that. It's because God is gracious. He created you with a free moral agency. That is, he created you with the privilege of humanity and immortality, and that is that you have the space to choose for yourself. That's the great, one of the greatest privileges you and I have. All right? How does he instruct us? Verse 14. Five minutes till pie time. But as for me, I trust in thee, O Lord, I say... Thou art my God. My times are in thy hands. Verse 15. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and from those who persecute me. How does God instruct us? Two things. Watch this. In the context of trust and, and non-suspicion. Now let me tell you what I mean by that. Are you listening to this? When I come to God, and I need you to understand this because I don't want to be misquoted. When I come to God, and I come in repentance and faith to God, and I bring my mistakes to Him, and I'm open about my mistakes, God treats me in the manner that He believes I will never do that again. Now, you need to get a hold of that. You say, well, in God omniscient, doesn't He know I'll do it again? I didn't, I'm not talking about that. I'm saying that the way God treats us when we come to Him with our mistakes is in the manner of His belief that that will never happen again. Now, when you come to someone else and you tell that person, hey, I've messed up big time, I made a mistake, I blew it, and I'm never going to do it again. 
you're going to go away thinking, yeah, I bet that's real, sure. You're going to have to prove it to me that you don't ever do it again. I've had people come down an aisle of a church and people meet me after church with a kind of a skepticism and a cynicism. Oh, that's not really, they're not going to follow through. It's not going to work. Because we respond with suspicion and lack of trust, not Him. When you come to God with your mistakes, He responds to you in this wise. You're never going to do that again. I love it. The second way he, he, how He treats us or how He instructs us is in verses 19 and 20. Read it with me. How great is thy goodness which thou hast stored up for those who fear thee, which thou hast wrought for those who take refuge in thee before the sons of men. Thou dost hide them in the secret place of thy presence from the conspiracies of man. Thou dost keep them secretly in a shelter from the strife of tongues. In other words, he deals with us in private rather than public. Now, I have a real problem with people who humiliate their children in public. I can tell you that God is not in the business of public humiliation. What He is in the business of doing is private rebuke in the secret places. Now, beforehand, what should we do before we mess up? Okay, I'll give you these quickly. We need to get a formula beforehand, that is... When a situation comes, what am I going to do? If this situation arises, what am, how am I going to handle it? What am I going to do about it? I need to ask these questions. I need to check these. What is the motive? Why am I doing this? What is the moment? That is, is this the right time for this? And what is the method? Is this the right way to go about it? I need to check that. Why am I doing it? What is the motive? Is this the right time to make that kind of choice? And is this the right way to go about it? We need to ask why, when, and what. But suppose you blew it. Yeah, you did. <laughs> suppose you've blown it. Afterward, what do you do? Think of three things. I am human. I'm going to make mistakes. I'm not making light of it. I'm not justifying anybody's mistake. I'm just telling you the truth. You're not perfect. One preacher asked everybody who was perfect to stand up. And one lone guy stood up. And the preacher said, Do you mean to tell me you think you're perfect? He said, No, I'm just standing in honor of my wife's deceased husband. Now, uh, he, he's a... <laughs> now, there, there's nobody perfect. I am only human. Second thing I need to say to myself, I have learned, I have learned from this. This is what I have learned. Third thing I need to say to myself, I will recover. This is not the end. God's not done with me. I'm going on, and I'm going to learn from my, I've learned from my mistake, I'm going to go and live in the light of what I've learned. I believe this with all my heart. 
that the way God deals with us is in the present. And he doesn't dwell on what we've done in the past. He just says, hey, you now need to move on. You will get better. You will be okay. For one of our greatest problems, and this is the application, is not our mistakes, but our failure to learn from them. Our greatest problem is not how we blow it, how we make mistakes, but our failure to learn from them. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for this wonderful word that we have in our hands and our heart. Help us to learn from it and to live by it in Jesus' name. Now, we want to give an invitation tonight, an invitation. Parcel it out all year long, all school year, the excitement, enthusiasm that these young people seem to have. Maybe you'd like to, to come tonight and the example of their coming to say, I want to give my life to Christ. I want to do that. I want to, I want to go with the Lord in baptism. I want to confess my faith to all people through baptism. Or maybe you'd like to come tonight and place your life in our church or as a person who has made a mistake. Say, I want to begin again at the place of beginning, in the land of beginning again. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.